morning. What a doozy, huh? Boy, aren't you glad you came to church on Labor Day weekend? Whoever comes to me and does not hate, just make sure I'm reading that right, hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. It occurred to me as I was preparing for this message this week that uh, those who are probably least in need of a message like this are going to be in church on Labor Day weekend, and those most in need are not here and probably at the lake or something, uh, which why aren't you all at the lake? It's Labor Day weekend. Um, you've come for a just a real doozy. Sometimes when I look at the lectionary, I just, I wonder why we follow it and... <laughs> Jesus does not do us any favors here, either, in explaining what he means. Uh, whoever does not hate, I mean, he just kind of leaves it there. Uh, and it, it begin, this begins with, he's got a large crowd following him. So he's not looking to, I think we can safely say, he's not looking to draw more into this crowd. If anything, he's trying to thin out this crowd, which I can actually kind of relate to, I suppose, uh, a big crowd um, trying to thin it out. I did, after all, choose to go with the lectionary text today. Uh, so you're all here. If you walk out in the middle, I will understand, and I will consider this a triumph. Uh, <laughs> Jesus here is proclaiming a word that not only stops us in our tracks, uh, but also kind of makes a second guess who it is that we're, we're following. There's, it, it, you don't have to have a knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures and the ways that they seem to contradict what Jesus is saying here to, to kind of wonder what he's getting at. I mean, even a, a common kind of sense of morality will make you think, what, what in the world is going on here? But compound that with a knowledge, a working knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures that at least some of this large crowd would have had, presumably, put ourselves in their shoes, and our minds might go back to passages in the Old Testament that seem to really, I mean, contradict completely what Jesus is saying here. Words of, of, of God from the Old Testament that seem to uh, just kind of fly in the face of what Jesus is saying here. Let's look at an example. Leviticus chapter 19. This is probably the the most kind of bold-faced. You shall not hate in your heart any one of your kin. How about that? Let's start there. So what are we to do with this tension? I mean, there's some real, there seems to be, Jesus, you've got a problem on your hands. Before we relieve this tension, I'd like to maybe even ratchet it up a little bit. So you might think about uh, Leviticus 19. This is a, a well-known passage of Scripture, one that Jesus himself will, will quote later, seeming to have forgotten what he has said to the large crowd here. But um, there's something even worse in the background of this directive that Jesus gives. Are you ready for it? I don't think you're ready for it. Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 3 uh, Moses takes too long to return from Mount Sinai, and the people get impatient. You're probably familiar with the story. They ask Aaron to fashion a god to lead them, which 
I mean, talk about a slap in the face to Moses, right? Uh, if that weren't bad enough, wait till you hear what happens when, when Moses returns from the mountain. We read, picking it up in verse 25, and I, I highlighted the, the bad part here, so you're getting there ahead of me. Moses saw that Aaron had let the people get completely out of control, much to the amusement of their enemies. I like that part. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and shouted, All of you who are on the Lord's side, come here and join me. And all the Levites gathered around him. Moses told them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each of you, take your swords and go back and forth from one end of the camp to the other. <laughs> Kill everyone. It's still odd to me to read it. Even your brothers and friends and neighbors... The Levites obeyed Moses' command, and about 3,000 people died that day. Then, if that weren't bad enough, Moses told the Levites, Great job. Today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord. Kind of makes you wonder. The service of the Lord. The Levites were involved in a lot of bloody stuff, but usually not with uh, other humans. Uh, they were part of the sacrifice detail. For you obeyed him, even though it meant killing your own sons and brothers. Today, you have earned a blessing. And again, if that weren't bad enough, it goes even further. In Deuteronomy, they're again praised for this. The passage of time doesn't seem to have made people kind of come to their senses as to the barbarity of this act. In Deuteronomy 33.8, Moses said about the tribe of Levi, The Levites obeyed your word and guarded your covenant. They were more loyal to you than to their own parents. They ignored their relatives and did not acknowledge their own children, which I think is putting it a little lightly given what we've just read. Not only did they not acknowledge their own children, they, well, we read it. So the connection between Exodus 32 and Luke 14 is perhaps easy to see. Uh, both seem to be calling for us to forsake our family members if they come between us and ultimate allegiance to God. But there's an important difference between them. We can breathe a sigh of relief at this point. Reading Luke 14 with Exodus 32 echoing in the background allows us to hear Jesus' words, perhaps in a different register. Jesus' directive to hate family, which sounds so harsh to our ears, leaves out the call to arms that's present in Exodus 32. So, good job, Jesus. You've, I mean, stopped short of calling us to kill our families. We, congratulations. But this is an important distinction. And if this is echoing in the background, we should say that following Jesus, then, is to be willing to forsake our, our families, our loved ones, but also... It's a call to forsake violence. Those kind of dual calls. Does that make sense? So with Exodus 32 echoing in the background, we're called to be willing to forsake even those closest to us, but also to renounce to forsake violence. So if they're going to continue following Jesus, they've got to be willing not only to forsake their families, but they've got to be ready to be led away from violence and not toward it.
So the relationship between these dual renunciations, the renunciation of, of family and the renunciation of violence. I'm not sure that we can tie them together too easily, but I'm going to try. So in Luke chapter 22, I think is probably the, the, the clearest, least that I could find, uh, the clearest example of how these two might be tied together. So when Jesus is being arrested, uh, this is uh, during his final days, Luke 22, verses 49 through 51, Jesus is being betrayed, soldiers are gathering together, Judas is ready to betray him with a kiss. When the other disciples saw what was about to happen, Jesus being arrested, they exclaimed, Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords. And one of them struck at the high priest's slave, slashing off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. So here, on the night of his betrayal, the disciples are ready to be the Levites. They are ready to spring into action. Jesus is really their, their family. He's the one that they've been walking with. He's the one that uh, has, has led them. They've experienced closeness with him, intimacy with him as his followers, and they are ready to spring to his defense here in Luke chapter 22. But Jesus' healing of the slave of the one who came to arrest him here accomplishes a reversal of Exodus 32 in some important ways. First, here in Luke 22, Jesus is demonstrating the kind of self-denial he commends to the crowd in Luke 14. Hate even your own life. Jesus knows that he's being arrested and he's going to be led to the cross, to death. He knows what the soldiers have come to do. And instead of rushing to defend himself, he instead rushes to the aid of one of those who have come to arrest him. Pretty striking. Second, in healing the slave of the one who, who came to arrest him, Jesus is also reordering the affections of his disciples. He's showing them a different way. Their instinct is to defend Jesus, to meet violence with violence. However, Jesus takes the disciples' understanding of things like loyalty and kinship and safety and protection, many of the things that you and I might say we value about family life, and makes it subordinate to his purpose, which is decidedly different. It's to go to the cross and to die. Again, think of Luke 14. Take up your cross. The cross is where he's headed. And no family member or close follower, however well-intentioned, is going to stand in his way as he makes that journey. No one's going to stop his purposes from being accomplished, especially not through, through violence. And finally, in, in healing the slave of the one who came to arrest him, Jesus shows his disciples how they should respond when they're met with violence and opposition, which... Of course, we know, with the benefit of hindsight, that they will be. After his ascension, his followers are all mistreated. They're all opposed. They all suffer. But here in Luke 22, Jesus is providing them an example. For when that happens, here's what you're to do. Seek restoration. Don't meet violence with violence. Is this making sense? Everybody tracking? Okay. In this episode, at his betrayal... 
Jesus heals what the disciples are seeking to kill. And there's such a gap here between uh, what the disciples think they're doing and what they're actually doing, isn't there? The only way to have their affections reordered is to, to unclench their fists, to literally to, to drop their, their swords, and to allow Jesus to accomplish with a touch what they thought could only be accomplished with the sword. So their instinct, their reflexive response, is to protect the one they love. The one who's, again, been their closest family for the preceding years. But as long as the love and protection that they offer involves violence inflicted upon those Jesus came to save, he's going to thwart it every time. Every time. Now, here comes the difficult part of connecting these, these two things. This might seem like a stretch, but isn't this what so often happens in our own families? Uh, we often think we're acting in their best interest when we're not. And we'll never be free to love rightly until we unclench our fists and allow Jesus to touch what we insist on keeping for ourselves. And Again, I think this is true. Nowhere is this gap between what we think we're doing and what, what we're actually accomplishing more apparent than in our relationships with our families. So I asked Hillary last night, and she, she caught me right away. Um, well, let me start here. This is going to get bad for me, so I'm, gonna just, I'm just going to start by saying I make a habit regularly of, of uh, folding and sorting our laundry, okay? So just... Keep that in mind as we go through this story. Hillary's in the room, so you know you can look to her if if I'm what I'm saying is untrue. So I asked her last night because it seems so obvious to me that there are so many times that I have uh, done something that was well intentioned that turned out to be kind of the opposite. So I, but I couldn't think of one. So that should give you a clue to where this is headed. I'm a little bit airheaded when it comes to those sorts of things. I asked her. <laughs> Has there ever been a time, and I, I asked that question, um, and she said, well, the first thing she said was, is this for a sermon illustration? <laughs> it, did a, some quick math in her head, it's Saturday night. And I said, well, yes. So I asked her this question, has there any, ever been anything I've done that I've, has, you know, you thought, I, I thought was well-intentioned, but turned out to be kind of the opposite? And I wish this were a joke. She looked at me and she said, you're doing it right now. <laughs> because I had picked up some laundry to sort it. And some people have different definitions of what well-sorted laundry looks like. So every time that I sort laundry, I'm actually making more work for Hillary if she's the one to, to put it away. Now this is a silly kind of mundane example, but isn't this so often the case that the ways that we try to help family members, loved ones, experience God's love, or whatever the case may be, be successful, uh, what we're doing is actually standing in their, in their way. We're actually having the opposite effect sometimes. I hope I'm not the only one for whom this is true. Are there any other husbands in the room? I don't... Uh. Okay, so I, I don't know if I'm explaining this very well. I uh, brought an icon to hopefully help uh, illustrate what I'm, what I'm saying. I started to do this a few months back, as, and it was kind of a novelty, and now it's become so predictable that I just I do it every time. So 
Oh, the lights are dimming. Thanks. So think about your family as you look at this icon. Uh, some of you might be able to relate more with the violence that's going on uh, in this icon. It might even resemble some of your family gatherings. In our effort to love those closest to us, isn't it so true that we can often stifle or smother or coerce or hover or intervene at the wrong time? Of course, this is depicting Luke 22. I hope you can put that together. You see Jesus there in the middle, uh, Judas betraying him with a kiss. And I don't want to dwell here for too long, but as a parent of young kids, uh, Jack, who just started school, who's six, if anybody wants to make fun of Jack or mistreat him, I am right there with the disciples saying, Lord, should we fight? We brought our swords. Maybe you can relate. As we've established, Jesus' words are difficult. They defy easy summary. We'll return to this icon in a moment, but I figured I'd give us just one simple, maybe, statement. If somebody's looking for a takeaway from this kind of scattershot message, maybe this would do. It comes from an 18th century Scottish theologian, Thomas Boston. He kind of sums up Jesus' words here in Luke 14 when he says, no man, no woman, can be a, a true disciple of Christ to whom Christ is not dearer than what is dearest to him or her in the world. No person can be a true disciple of Christ to whom Christ is not dearer than what is dearest to him or her in the world. Jesus' treatment of family here is nuanced, and I'm, I'm not confident in my ability to explain it clearly, so let's go back to this icon. I, I wonder if it might help. I want us to focus on, in the midst of all of this tumult that's going on in the background, focus on uh, the bottom right-hand corner. I don't know if you can see what's going on there. This is the disciple, Simon Peter, uh, cutting off the ear of the slave of the one who came to arrest Jesus. A couple things I notice about this icon. The slave appears to be not much older than a child. And I don't know about you, I've typically imagined the slave to be an adult. I've also imagined Simon Peter's action here as sort of haphazard, just kind of swinging his sword wildly. Doesn't even wait for an answer from Jesus, he just kind of swings, and the blow just happens to land upon the slave's ear. But this icon, it's, it's really unsettling. It shows Peter's violence as precisely directed. There's even a kind of intimacy in the way that Peter and the slave are positioned. It might even call to mind another biblical story of Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac. Can you see that there? Secondly, and what's probably more unsettling to me, I'm sorry that I'm making you just focus on this violent scene for so long, but what's probably most unsettling to me about this scene is that at first glance, Peter appears to be shielding the child from the violence around him. Doesn't he crouched over him, almost hovering to protect? If you didn't know what was going on in the scene, you might assume that he's shielding him from the, everybody else is ready to rumble, right? And, and Peter's there hovering over. But what is actually happening here, as we know, is something else entirely. Peter's crouched over the child, not to protect him from violence, but to strike a blow. 
And the one thing, this is the, probably the kicker, right? The one thing that he's actually shielding the child from is a clear view of Jesus. Call to mind again the gulf that exists between what we think we're doing out of love and the harm it's actually causing so often in our closest relationships. We're especially vulnerable to these kinds of sins in our families, our close relationships. You must count the cost, Jesus says. This cost counting, it occurs to me, does involve sitting down with a trusted advisor and crafting a, a budget down to the nearest penny to ensure that we have enough left over. Yes, it's true that in one sense we must carefully consider what it means to follow Jesus, but in another sense there's no calculation required at all. Jesus has already run the numbers for us, and it turns out that what it costs us is nothing less than everything. The calculation is already done. I like the way that theologian Robert Ferrer Capon sums it up. He says, how much does it cost then, following Jesus? Everything you've got, the works, the whole farm, with no pocket money left over. There are no pockets in a shroud. We want to cling to what we have and to try to hold everything together whether it be relationships or family or finances. But the call here is to do the opposite, to hold our possessions and relationships with open hands rather than closed fists. We are, Jesus directs us, to seek to live unencumbered lives. So much of the Christian life, I want to submit to you, is lived between these two verses, Luke twenty-two forty-nine 49 and 50, the question the disciples ask, Lord, should we fight? We brought our swords and the swinging of the sword to defend what we love immediately without a moment's thought. And we don't recognize it as harmful or violent until we hear Jesus say, no more of this. And we step back and we watch as he heals and restores. So the, the challenge to us this morning, there are probably many, I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to, to drop challenges into our hearts, given our own family circumstances and situations. But the challenge for us is to have our affections reordered so that we might wait, so that we might pause long enough for Jesus to act, so that we might not move directly from, Lord, should we fight to swing the sword, but to pause whether that be in prayer or in contemplation or in lament, to pause long enough so that Jesus might act. And I think the good news is this morning that even when we don't, because we often don't, where is Jesus here? He's doing with a touch what we thought could only be accomplished with the sword. In closing, I didn't add these scriptures, so I'm going to, Anybody familiar with a sword drill? I'm going to do a quick. Big thanks to Steve and Angie Long, who I don't think are here this morning, but they uh, worked hard to get these Bibles in the hands of all of our kids for Sunday. So I actually, 
what a terrible irony that I stole one of these Bibles on this of all mornings. Hopefully everybody's got one back there. What am I looking for here? Luke chapter 5. There's an irony that I, I just want to point out. I'm not sure what to do with it. But Jesus says, count the cost. But when he first calls the disciples, they don't seem to spend much time counting the cost. Uh, so Luke chapter 5, verse 11. This is the calling of the first disciples. Uh, the calling of Peter, Andrew. When they had brought their boats to land, this is after Jesus calls them, they left everything and followed him. Just like that. I'm not sure what to do with that tension. Also in Luke chapter 5, verse 27, uh, Matthew's calling of, of Levi, the tax collector. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Just kind of one instant to the next. So in one sense, I think it's true. I'm not totally sure what to do with this, and um, this is as close as I'm going to get to freestyling here. In one sense, I think the decision to follow Jesus needs to be one, and it's the most important decision that we could make, but needs to be one that we're willing to make at a moment's notice. But so much of those decisions that come after that, that are part of the daily struggle of the Christian life are decisions that we need to be willing to pause and to let Christ work where we can't. Whether that be in our families, our closest relationships, again, our finances, our, our jobs. Um, it's striking to me that, again, the disciples are, they, they ask Jesus, Lord, should we fight? So it's not as, they're not even doing this of their own. They're asking Jesus before they, they draw the sword. But just to step back and to pause and to let Christ hold together what we have tried in vain or tried wrongly to hold together by ourselves. It's only when we rightly order our loves and loosen our grasp that we're free to let Christ hold our families together in ways that we can't, in ways that aren't coercive, ways that don't harm or do violence. So as we come to the table this morning, we're accepting a call to, that Christ is making to, to abandon or to be willing to abandon everything, to make everything subordinate to his purpose. And that purpose ends at the cross, nothing left over. There are no pockets in a shroud. So as we come to the table, um, we made a, a slight change this morning. You might notice uh, the, the bread will be uh, served. Um, you can just pick up the, the cracker as you come, uh, and then you can grab the, uh, the juice from the, the table. So as you come, you'll hear the words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Would you stand as we prepare to come to the table? Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word. Even when it's difficult, even when it makes us pause, because so often it's in that pausing 
trying to puzzle out what you're saying seemingly so harshly that we're met with your spirit, that we find the help that we need. So help us to pause again today, hearing the harshness of your words and the truth of them, and to take seriously the call that you have given us to renounce attachments, to live unencumbered lives, that we might quickly be able to drop everything and follow you because the everything that we're dropping is not as much as we had when we were living in sin. And help us as we follow you in our everyday lives to pause and to let you hold what we have insisted on clutching Help us to hold even that which we hold dearest with a light grip that we might experience your touch. All that we'd seek to defend and protect, that we'd hold it loosely, that we might see you touch it and heal with a touch what we have harmed. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray.